Welcome to Queer Storytime, the podcast. This is a brave space for sharing queer and trans stories of radical affirmation, acceptance, empowerment, and healing. I'm your host, Stevie Ingram. I so look forward to you joining us. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Alrighty, y'all. Queer in three, two, one. Let's go. Welcome, my friends, to episode number six of Queer Storytime. It's so wonderful to have you back. And I hope that the loving kindness is reverberating within you from our last episode. Today's guest is an absolutely fire human being, my friend, Dr. Michelle Cromwell. I first met Dr. Cromwell at one of my academic institutions and was immediately drawn to their vibrant energy and to their commitment to social activism and justice throughout the length of their career in academia and beyond. Before I share a little bit about Dr. Cromwell, I'd like all of us to join together for a few moments of centeredness and ease. So if it's accessible to you right here and now, you are welcome to close your eyes or simply just have a downward cast gaze. And as you close your eyes or have that downward cast gaze, bring your awareness to the breath. Noticing each breath in, noticing each breath out. Deeply inhaling, deeply exhaling. One last mindful breath here together, slowly inhaling. Slowly exhaling. As you're ready, you can gently begin opening your eyes and bringing your awareness back into your surroundings. So now I'm going to introduce my friend, Dr. Michelle Cromwell. Dr. Michelle is a heart-centered strategist and consultant that brings almost two decades of experience as an anti-oppression scholar activist, conflict coach, and dialogue facilitator. They served in higher education for 18 years, which included 11 years as faculty, seven of which were as a tenured associate professor. Michelle's remaining tenure in higher education was as vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Currently, as an independent consultant, Michelle works across sectors to identify, address, and resolve their organizational pain, which is an acronym for persistent aggravations and identified negatives that are related to policies, procedures, and programs. Michelle holds a PhD in conflict analysis and resolution with a specialty in ethnic conflicts from Nova Southeastern University in Florida, where they were inducted as one of Nova Southeastern University's distinguished alumni for work in social justice and restorative practices. In addition to the equity, diversity, and inclusion work, 
They also serve as an equity-centered integrative wellness practitioner, including yoga, Reiki, plant-based nutrition, hypnotherapy, planetary herbalism, and sonic sound. They work one-on-one with clients, conduct group experiences, and develop equity-centered wellness initiatives to teach those they work with to use integrative wellness as an end goal to achieve mind-body health. Michelle combines the anti-oppression work with their boutique travel business and curates and leads immersive transformational experiences that help participants to achieve liberated lives curated by authenticity, boldness, and compassion for self than others. In their spare time, Michelle can be found creating guided meditation music, teaching yoga, and developing whole food plant-based recipes to mimic favorite foods from a West Indian childhood. Dr. Michelle, welcome to Queer Storytime. It's an honor to have you here joining us on this podcast and to hear about your journey as a non-binary human walking on this planet. Oh, it is such a joy to be with you. Such a joy. And you know, when you read the bio, I'm like, who are you talking about? Because I'm just Dr. Michelle. So Glad to be here with you. Glad to be here. So why don't we start out by you taking us back to the beginning to share a little bit about you and your life journey and how you got to where you are today. So I think as we talk about, because you mentioned me being non-binary, I feel it's important to start there. So I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, and you can tell from the accent, right? I come from a land afar. But what was interesting is that my mom was light years ahead of her time. She never allowed people to call me she. She'd always said that she is the cat's mother. So she would call me by my name. And interestingly, she also referred to me as sir. Wow. So I grew up with three brothers. You know, there were four kids. So I was the only girl and the last child. So it was interesting that I was sort of like engendered like a man, even though I had, you know, a mom that I was really close to. So that early, and I'm a fallen away sociology professor, so taught sociology for almost 11 years. So that socialization, I think was really interesting and gave me a true different sense of maybe my identity and who I was, even in Trinidad and Tobago, that was really, to some extent, traditional. But I was raised in a household by a mom that I would say was my first anti-racist teacher, right? And she probably was also my first structural feminist role model because she was a badass. Interestingly, though, she was kind of undercover, Because again, where we were, so she was a teacher, eventually became a principal. I like to say that she wasn't coy, but the way that she did her activism was interesting as I think about it now. And she really sort of like put that into me. So that's kind of like where it all started. And she really taught me to be two things, fearless, truly fearless, but irreverent. Wow. Your mom was a powerful one. She was a badass. How you flourished into the person that you are being born into the family that you were. That's amazing. So you mentioned briefly about like the traditional quote unquote gender roles in Trinidad and Tobago at the time and you growing up in a family that kind of pushed back against that. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah. In my role now as a holistic leadership coach, I'm thinking a lot and sharing a lot with my clients, but also in my own introspection, thinking about where I came from and how I've come to be. And as I think about those gender roles, I share that I was the only girl. I was also the last child. So you would think that I was helping my mom to do the cooking and the cleaning. I didn't grow up cleaning. My brothers 
did the cleaning. Interestingly, so I had, I grew up with what we call sensitive skin. So it was difficult for me to be in contact with some of the cleaning products. So I think because of that, but also somehow, I think too, my mother didn't really have me do some of those traditional roles that women did because she didn't raise me that way. But here's the other interesting thing. At 19, I went to culinary school. So I'm a trained chef. My mom, she somehow had that traditional role. You know, she sometimes brought us breakfast in bed. We had hot meals to go to school with, or when we came home for dinner, we sat at the table as a family and we had a hot dinner. I don't know how this woman did it. She had a full-time job, right? She was a teacher, then became the head of the school, but somehow she didn't place those more traditional roles on me. And I think honestly, it might've been that she saw and understood who I was as a human being. I remember a time she would say to me, why can't you just be a lady? And then she gave up because it wasn't me. I was more androgynous. You know, I had the boyish figure. I had a big butt, but no hips, no boobs. So had that in terms of gender we're talking about, I think I always had that And I want to say that could seem to be genderqueer. And I think her understanding this human being that she brought into the world and that she had to raise, she gave me a sense of agency like nobody else did, but also put in me that I didn't have to do what other people expected or other people wanted me to do. And she would always say, as long as it's legal and moral, do it. Right. So yeah, she raised me to be reverent, but also raised me to be truly respectful of myself and others while walking in my own true story, even in, and we say a traditional society, but also remembering that Trinidad and Tobago was colonized. So if I didn't have my mom to really truly do that decolonization, who knows where I would have been? Wow. So powerful, even in colonized times and because of colonization, that your mother just recognized that within you and that it wasn't necessarily a struggle. Your mom was just seeing your true nature and kind of accepted it beyond that time that she said, why can't you be a lady? But then she recognized within herself, like, this isn't reality. (laughs) Ain't no lady here. Ain't no lady in that one. And just really allowed me to be myself. If I can tell a story, because we on story time, I probably was about four years old. I couldn't be more than six. But I remember clearly for a week, I must have been cuckoo bananas. I refused to answer to my name, Michelle. And I said to my brothers and everybody that they had to call me Briggs. So that must have been the drag queen that was in me. And I wore my brothers, you know, the khaki pants, right? I wore their pants and for the week, I refused to be called Michelle. And I was walking around the house, you know, trying to help people fix stuff. So I think from then my mom probably was like, let this one be whoever they want to be. That's amazing. And this was, you know, way before we have like the outward conversation that we are now in 2024 and 2023 about gender and still pushing up against all these colonial European centric ideas of, of gender identity and sexuality. But this was 30 plus years beyond us having this conversation today, which is amazing that your mom had that insight and wisdom to just recognize you for who you are, dependent of, you know, the colonization that your country of origin experienced. And really give me the agency to be the self that I was comfortable in. And I think one of the things, especially as a Black woman and as a dark-skinned Black woman with a strange accent, with nappy hair, I really, from yay high, had a true, true sense of self. I mean, there were times when I did some of the performative bullshit, because I think that's a part of coming into yourself. But I always had, even with whatever experiences I had with trauma, 
always had a true sense of self. Did you always initially have the language of being non-binary? No, of course not. Because that was something that I came into when I got into my work of anti-oppression, diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I think I always had the language of being androgynous. I always had the language of walking a line where sometimes people had to question if some of my ideas could be misogynist, right? Because I'm woman, I look like woman, I sound like woman, but I was engendered by men. I was a daddy's girl, right? So I was always there with my dad, potting around, fixing stuff. So I think that was the line that I had to walk. But I always knew that there was something that was different, but it was okay. Yeah. I often talk about on this podcast how those of us in the queer and trans community, non-binary community, don't have language for these things. Language is evolving as our consciousness evolves on these topics. Can you talk about that moment of insight, like when you discovered this term non-binary, what that felt like for you? And like, you know, if it was kind of a liberatory moment for you discovering that language. Yeah. And, and that's such a good question because I think it probably has been something that I embraced more recently. And when I say more recently, I would say in about maybe the last 10 years or so, even later than that, many people that know me would understand that I may have been you know, more androgynous, and I'm heterosexual, I'm a woman, I'm attracted to men. And this idea of non-binary, I think has been something that was newer for me. I'll tell you what though, Stevie, I always felt uncomfortable when people called me she, because I was socialized not to be called she. So it always felt jarring, but I didn't have the language to tell them to refer to me as something else. And then people didn't really understand. It's like, what do you mean? You're a woman. You know, you wear makeup. I didn't have the language, but now I do. But I'll also tell you what, I come to this identity with a level of grace and space for people that are still learning, that are still understanding what it means. So I might want to say to somebody in my head, and I don't say it, my clitoris might be more of a penis, but will they understand that? No, they don't, right? Yeah. So giving them some grace and space to understand what it means and taking them on that journey. But I think it is more about who I am and what it means for me, more so than someone misgendering me. And I was at that point at some time. I think it's more important for me to understand who I am and for me to help people to understand who I am. And does that make sense? More than a label, a pronoun that's a label. However, having said that, there still is the discomfort with being called she because I don't know what that feels like. Yeah. I don't know what being the feminine she feels like. And as a yoga teacher, I have learned to come in to my defined feminine because I think I think like a dude. My ex-husbands could tell you that. I think like, I think I do. So I have to find that divine feminine that's a part of me and embrace that. So much of what you're saying is resonating with me personally. You know, you didn't have that socialization of being called she. I did have the socialization of being called he, but it just never felt right to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm just I'm, I'm absorbing what you're saying right now. And it's really powerful. And I think many queer and trans people can resonate with having these deeply felt feelings like early on in childhood. It's such a narrative that is always coming back on this podcast, because right now there's a lot of narratives about like cisgender people specifically not understanding gender expansive or sexually expansive people. You know, the one thing I always wish to impart in cisgender identifying people is like gender expansive people have always felt this way. We've always felt 
some difference between what society says we need to be versus how we feel inside. It's often because we don't have language to express like what that is we're feeling when we're much younger that leads to a bunch of confusion, a bunch of trauma, a bunch of suppression and shame for many of us. So it's amazing to like witness that evolution in other people as well. As I said earlier, as our consciousness expands these ideas of gender in a way that's much more expansive than the European-centric of binary of man, woman, masculine, feminine, all of that stuff. You're so right, because I think the other thing too is we end up being in systems that, you know, when we talk about oppression, it really is pressing you into something else, a shape that you're not. And I think one of the challenges for me, especially having been in the C-suite in higher ed, is that when you see me, also my voice has a higher tenor. So the expectation is that I will be soft. I'm also an immigrant. You know, I'm a yogi. I'm a practicing Buddhist. So the expectation might be that I would be soft and maybe a little demure and as a Black woman know my place. But when we think about gender and being engendered, more masculine, I'm coming in hot. <laughs> and I'm pitta, you know, in terms of my body type, my Ayurvedic body type. So as a planetary herbalist, we study traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, and Western herbs. So understanding that I'm pitta, all of that put together is me, non-binary gender, my Ayurvedic body type being engendered more masculine. So people are like, what the Wahe Guru is going on here? Yeah, and it's such a beautiful thing to just not fit in all those boxes. That's why I say I'm now in the corner office with a view over my kitchen. And that's why I had to step out of that system and now support people that want to still be in that system and be okay with it. Because I think as you talk about people that have these expansive genders or anything that is outside of the margins, that you can't always find your place. In more traditional spaces, even though they would purport that this is what they're about based on their mission, or they would hire people. I was one of those people that they hired to come in and transform institutions. But I don't think that institutions have the bandwidth to do some of what they really wish that they say they can do. They just don't. It has to be a true and total revolution. Right. What is your personal assessment on why that transition is not able to happen? Well, I think in terms of the various human conditions, when institutions either hire people or just really have that mission, I think it has to come from a place that is even beyond the institutional structure. What we're talking about is some soul work and institutions need to do a level of healing and a level of self-acknowledgement that I think they're not always able to do because there is the belief that if I'm doing something that's off as an institution or as people in the institution, it means that I'm off, not the same. So it's almost as though institutions have to have a true deep understanding that they can separate the issue, their issues, from being a decent institution. I realize that that's hard to do. And if people haven't done that, I call it the inner work. And some of the work that I do is related to the Enneagram, which is an amazing process of really doing your deep inner work. And if people that are either leading this work and leading institutions haven't done that deep inner work, then it's difficult to get that work done. It truly is. Absolutely. Yeah. And I see that going through medical school right now. I mean, beyond my medical school, a lot of institutions have grand visions for diversity, equity, and inclusion. But if they're not doing that individual soul work, they just continue to perpetuate harm. Yeah. Um, it's so glaringly obvious when you're in it long enough. Yeah. And there has to be a level of healing for these institutions, for the people in the institutions. And I think that again comes back to the inner work. And that inner work ain't pretty. For this last year, 
I have to say that that's what I was doing, my soul work. And it's ugly. It's ugly work. It's ugly work. That shadow work is ugly. Institutions have shadows as well. Right. And they have to do that shadow work before they can move on to do this work. And when you either bring people in or you try to build those bridges to do that work, the bridges will always implode. It's almost like fits and starts. And again, that is not slandering institutions that want to do this work. It just is an unfortunate reality. So what are some of your thoughts on those in marginalized communities, the queer and trans community, the Black community, any person of color working, you know, just trying to baseline move through these institutions that haven't done the work? Oh, that is such a good question. So some of the work that I'm doing right now with individual coaching clients or with groups of women that I call pods or with institutions, again, is coming back to the inner work. When you have a marginalized identity, it is always important for you to understand that that is just one tiny piece of who you are. And in the mindset work that I do, and a lot of the work, I'm actually building a model now on mindsets, and I call it the HQ, which is the holistic coefficient. It really is about having holistic intelligence. Yes, I am minoritized. I'm Black, I'm an immigrant, you know, English is not my first language, the Trinidad vernacular is my first language, and I have all these things that can make me marginalized. However, that is not my status. And I think when we are hyper-vigilant or hyper-focused on our marginalization, there is a victim status that comes along with that. Now, Get me right, people that are listening. I'm not saying that we have to nullify or negate that part of us. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you have to do your inner work and understand when there are times that you show up or before you show up that there is the expectation because you have imbibed the oppression, the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, and you expect to be either treated badly, to be made to feel that you don't belong, instead of stepping into those spaces with the mindset that I'm here, deal with it. And I think if people with these identities, that was some of the work that I had to do, shifting the mindset to show up, because I'm doing some work with a coaching part out of Stanford University now, amazing set of coaches, and we call it the sage brain. But as a practicing Buddhist and a yogi, we all have this inner guru. So if people with marginalized identities and in marginalized statuses and also racially minoritized statuses and identities can tap into that sage or guru within them, it will be over for the oppressor. O-V-A-H, over, over. Because then you are not stepping in hypervigilant. You're not stepping in as a victim. You're also not stepping in to over accommodate and to always give the other person more. You're also not stepping in angry and controlling, right? But when you step in with your sage brain, there's a way that you can navigate these spaces that it's like a hot knife cutting butter. And when you can do that, that's where the holistic intelligence comes from. You'll be healthier because this stuff, it's crazy making. And that's where the degenerative diseases come from. But the stress, and I mean, we can go down that rabbit hole. So if we can show up in ways that really activate our guru, you know, I call it the guru genius. We all have that in us that you can navigate when something happens you know exactly what to say to throw it back at them. The microaggressions come. Yeah, you feel it. You're human. You feel it for a bit, but you don't let it move in and pay rent. Worse yet, take out a mortgage. When it starts to unpack, you know you're in trouble. Evict it. And you just put it back at that person's feet and let them deal with it. And you watch them deal with it. So it's no longer in you. And if we can do those things, and that's what I'm teaching people to do now. When we can do that, if we can do that, our experiences will be different. And all the things that we can't control that are structural, it will feel less 
because then we're, we're taking back some of the control that we have. And that was long-winded, but I hope that made sense. That was a perfect answer. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about recognizing that there is systemic, structural, institutional harm happening on many levels, and then moving from this place of victimhood because of these structural inadequacies, moving from that place of victimhood to more awakening, greater awakening, greater liberation? Like how specifically? What are tools that people can use? You're asking for a blueprint. You know (laughs) I'm the blueprint queen. Yes, I'm a queen. So I think a big part of the blueprint is understanding that my liberation is tied in yours. And that's the first thing, that we cannot do this alone. We can't do this alone. So it has to happen in concert. And too often people try to change institutions by themselves. You bring in a XYZ vice president of whatever, and you tell them, go in the corner and do your job. You have to do it in concert. So as Leila Watson said, my liberation is tied in yours. Dr. Martin Luther King said it too. There's that inextricable connection of our liberation to the other person. So we have to do it together. That's the first thing. The second thing is, people are not going to like this. You got to do the inner work. If the shit always goes down and you're always present and it still smells like shit, you got to check yourself. You got to check yourself because you're not helping to navigate that into something else. And I know that sounds harsh, but I also had to do some of that because I'm like, Yeah, I know that these systems are the same, but I'm not just the common denominator. I was the recurring decimal because I was seeing the same things happening as great as I was. So I know that I had to do some of my own inner work. So you have to do the inner work. You're working together in concert. You're doing your inner work because when you can do your inner work, you show up differently you experience the institution differently. And there is this level of, I call it infinite joy that is missing. We need to be able to do this work with a level of infinite joy. And that joy only comes from the inner work, understanding yourself. And if nobody picks nothing else up from what I dropped down, that Enneagram, figure out where you are on the Enneagram. And the Enneagram is, it's also energetic. Figure out what energy you bring into the world because you're not just bringing that energy for you. You're bringing that energy to the collective. So doing it together, doing your inner work, figuring out where you are energetically and asking for help. Because I think that there are so many amazing human beings out here that are here to really help people along. And the very last thing is, you got to have a radical self-care practice, a radical self-care practice. For me, I could go to the meeting late because I didn't get off the mat in time. So every day I do two hours of yoga, meditation, and my Buddhism chanting. I'm also Catholic, so the Christian prayers comes up in there. And that's all a part of my radical self-care practice. And when the weather is good, I run at least three to four miles every day. But find something that works for you. And when you put that all together, that is your compass for you and your compass to dealing with these oppressive systems because they'll always be there. That's a tension right between the agent and the structure. That tension will always be there. But we have to find ways to do more than surviving. We deserve to thrive and we deserve to have that infinite joy. Oh my God, that joy. Amen. If people don't know the, I had my prior guest in episode four was Dr. Jampa Verst, who is a a Buddhist teacher, non-binary lesbian. We, in that episode, we talked about Buddha nature. Buddha nature in Buddhism is simply a language, I think, for recognizing our own awakened nature. We have to do the self-work, the radical self-care. Radical self-care is that deep healing inner work that we all need to do, whether it's through running, yoga, tai chi, reiki, finding practices that connect you to yourself. Because these institutions and these structures do want to pull us away from ourselves, and they they so easily can if we allow it, as I know, going through medical school right now. So 
I want to get back now that we've talked a little bit about your work in anti-oppression work and the work of liberation. I wanted to ask you this earlier, but it's such an interesting question. And I hope the heterosexual men specifically <laughs> decide to listen to this question because men, straight men, heterosexual men need to do a lot of this healing work in the world. And I'm curious for you as a non-binary person attracted to that is heterosexual, you know, what can you offer men specifically in them in this realm of like doing their own work? Because there's there is a lot of harm. There's a lot of you know, what we call toxic masculinity, a lot of expectations that men feel that they have to meet in order to be like man enough in this world. That's so it's destructive to them and also destructive to the people, to the women often or the feminine presenting people that they date. So right. what what are your thoughts on this? That's a good one. So I'm a, one. I'm a boy mom. And he's he's not a boy anymore. He's a 27-year-old tall drink of water. I call him Red Sox. <laughs> he works with the Red Sox. I think one of the things that I can say that I can offer as the mother of a man, the mother of a Black man, the mother of a cisgendered man, is that I can be very clear with him about deconstructing gender roles. So from very young, I taught him to be self-sufficient so he can cook. I'm a chef. I taught him little secrets, how to do this, how to make this taste good. So I think as he moves through life and he moves into whatever relationship he has, I don't think I will see him perpetuating the expectation that a woman is supposed to cook a meal for him and prepare a plate. I don't know when this happened. I have an inkling, but I don't know when it happened. He has from maybe about 13, from the age of 13, because I was a single mom, unpack the groceries when I come back from the supermarket, take them out of the car, and he will put them away. Every last one. He still does that. He no, no longer lives with me with, when he comes to visit. It's something that he does. So I feel that a part of my role was inculcating in this man, you know, the need for him to, to challenge and deconstruct these gender roles that even a woman that he might date or marry might expect of him. That he can say, no, I can cook. Or I would put the groceries away. I could do the laundry. And I can see that he's going to be an amazing, amazing, amazing husband. And I think for me, for men that I date, especially when they hear that I'm a chef, that they're expecting me to, I'm like, no ma'am, no ham, no turkey. No, no. I will cook if I feel like, but I know how to order. Right. Yeah. Don't expect me to clean. Don't expect me to do your laundry. So all of those things, I think, being very clear and demanding that I'm not judged for it, that it doesn't mean that I'm any less of a woman, just means that it's not a role that I ascribe to. And I even think about my own mothering. My son and I have a very, very, very good relationship. I've always been, you know, there for him. He was an athlete in high school and in college. And when I said, what do you need? He said, I need you to be at my games. I need you to, you know, prepare dinner when I need it so that I have what I need, the sustenance to play. But when I think about, you know, my role as a hovering mother, I don't think I did that, maybe because I didn't know how to. Now, I was like the Black Hawk, you mess with my Black child, I'm ready to come for you, I'm coming in hot. <laughs> but still didn't have that role. So I think in maybe navigating that way with him, and maybe with the men that I will date, I, I don't think I will get married again because I, I don't think I ever was the marrying kind. But I'd love to have a rich lover. All right. <laughs> no, but seriously, by navigating in that way, I can help them to start deconstructing the expectations they have of what women should be or what women should do. I hope that answered the question. I'm curious too. What has your experience been in relationship to men outside of your son, like with you showing up as non-binary, but presenting feminine to the world? And like, what 
a man's expectation of that might be going into relationship with you? I think there is always a bit of shock in that it almost sometimes feels as though, so if it's a an alpha man, that I'm in competition with them to wear the pants and that I should know my place. So my ex-husband always told me that I was married, but behaved like I was single. So I think there was some of that. And for men who that is a challenge with feeling that the person is probably at the same level with you and an equal, always challenging, which is why I'm not married today. So I would love to find somebody that is truly comfortable in their manness wherever they are, and that they can see me not even as an equal, but just as somebody that's taking up an equal amount of space with them. And I haven't met I haven't met that person yet because men are engendered in a specific way and understandably by their families, but also by society. They're good students. So I think there's a bit of competition. And I, I remember one of my very first relationships, and I won't say what profession they are because then people will guess, but this person said to me, you know, you'll never be as bright as I am. Hmm. You, you'll never be as good as I am. And I think that was their way of putting me in my place because I'm, I'm, I'm free. I can, I can be who I am, say what I want, do what I want. As long as it's legal and moral, I respect you as my partner. But I don't think that they really saw me as a partner. They wanted me to be that person that was one step behind them. And hey, I'm Briggs. So I think that it always was a challenge, but I'm still open to finding that person that truly is willing to give me equal space. And that takes a liberated man. (laughs) It does. It takes a liberated man. And it also takes a liberated man that was raised by a liberated woman to get there and to not have those expectations. So, yeah. Yeah, I see a lot of men that are hurting or, you know, that this is a big one in my own experience, but I see it happening to other queer and trans people, you know, that men will sexualize gender expansive people, but then, you know, be on the infamous DL, the down low, you want it to be completely secretive mm. because they're so ashamed mm. about how they would be perceived being mm. with another human being that doesn't meet these rigid gender norms. It's a heavy amount of suffering to both uh, ways. Both ways, yeah. As you talk about that, my heart goes out to anybody that has to live with that burden. I mean, the men that have to live with that burden of secrecy, so they have to be on the DL. But I think it's even more painful to have that level of internal rejection as somebody that's queer, that's trans, that doesn't feel that you can be fully loved and wholly loved in the way that you deserve. Hearing you verbalize it, it's heartbreaking. And you know, as you talk about this, I haven't really put much thought into the success of my own relationships or the or the lack of success of my romantic relationships and my gender identity. Maybe it's something that I need to explore some more. This is a non-negotiable for me. I'm not going to pretend to be more feminine. I'm not going to pretend to be, no, this is me. But definitely as we having this conversation, I'm like, oh, this is something that I probably should explore some more. And as a hypnotherapist, having gone through hypnotherapy, a lot of in my past life and my past incarnations, I was a man and not just a man. I was like a soldier or this. So definitely some some stuff to to explore. That energy is still with you. It's heavy. So whenever I sit, my male side is always dominant, always dominant. So I have to work more intentionally on the divine feminine because it's there in the voice. You know, it's there in some of the things that I like, like the lipstick, but it's not there in other places. So I have to, for me to have balance, I need to bring that divine feminine. And maybe it might be as we're talking about this, and I'm not really attracted to more feminine men, but that might be my perfect partner. 
Sounds like it. Okay. <laughs> We're awakening right now on Queer Storytime. I hadn't thought about it. So maybe the alpha man that I'm attracted to is not the, the perfect person for me. The like energetic alignment that you need. Yeah. Yeah. And there we have it. There we have it. Queer Storytime. <laughs> getting, getting the perfect match me my god too funny wow well we could keep going all day but not that this hasn't been a spiritually fulfilling conversation it has but as i often say this is an an ode to ms oprah winfrey who does super soul sunday i do super soul questions at the end of queer story time so we are going to transition into that so these are a couple questions the first of which is at this moment given all of your life experiences what do you feel that your life purpose is that's a beautiful question beautiful question so i'm clear as day that I'm a healer. And my life purpose that I've been running from for decades is that my purpose is to heal the Black female presenting body and the love warriors of those Black female presenting bodies. And to take it a little further in that healing that I do the decolonization of the white mind. That's my work. Just as a follow-up question, now that you said that, how can non-POCs, aka white people, support you in that work? And when I talk about love warriors or advocates, that's who they are. Because they love these women intimately, wholly, in a way that they want to see them win. And that they understand that for they themselves, who are non-Black people of color, or even people of whiteness, that there is some work that they have to support. The term love warriors comes from somebody that I adore, Dr. Deborah Egerton, who is the, the president of the International Enneagram Association. And I actually learned about the Enneagram from her, and I'm still learning with her, that the love warriors, because we're in battle together for the liberation and healing of these Black bodies. So how can we support that? For the white listeners. And this may sound tongue in cheek. There has to be a comfort with opening doors, not stepping through the door, but opening the door and allowing the black woman to walk through and then coming in after. And that will take a level of unlearning that is new, not to the white body, but to the white mind. So there has to be the mindfulness work, and there has to be some work of the mindsets. For people that are listening, it's a joy for me to do this work with people. And I call that the holistic coefficient for people to really start saying, how am I not using my sage brain to do some of what you've been asking for? You know, so for this October, it took me a year to realize that I was doing this wrong. I'm doing a retreat and inviting 42 women, female presenting human beings to come with me to Africa, to three countries, Benin, Ghana, Togo. When I curated that experience before I said it was only for Black women, I was wrong because we don't live in Blackville or Brownville, but I'm inviting 42 people to come. And of those 42, some of them will be, and this is an invitation, to love warriors to come along and to hold those doors open so that women can walk through and do their healing and that we can all be in that circle, the Sankofa circle, to do this work together because one person's liberation is inextricably tied in the other. That's how you can support, by being there. I love that. I love that. That's wonderful. I would love to be able to attend that, but you know, medical school at this <laughs> moment in time. Question number two is knowing what you know now, what would you have told your younger self about your identity? I don't think I would have told her much different 
So my mom, there was a mantra that she had me say. For me, it was like a mantra, so an affirmation. And it was just, you don't scare me. She would have me say that over and over as a little girl. And she'd say, look at them in the white of their eyes and say, you don't scare me. And when I got older, my mother was very prim. You know, she was the lady. <laughs> she said to me, you can add a fifth word, Mickey, because that's what the family called me, Mickey. She said, you say, you don't fucking scare me. I would have said to my younger self, don't forget that nobody or nothing scares you. And to walk through the world really with that in your heart. Because there were some situations that even in work that were just frightful that I needed to always remember that, that you don't fucking scare me. That's powerful. We can end there. <laughs> we're not going to. <laughs> what is one thing in all this decolonial, anti-oppression, anti-racist work that you do? What is one thing that you wish others understood about the gender and sexually expansive community? Oh, that's, a, that's a really good one, that gender identity and your non-binary identity is not really like a monolith. It's a part of your social location. And there cannot be the expectation that because I'm X or because I'm Y, that this therefore defines how I should be treated or what my needs are. And we're talking about needs, what my needs are for me to thrive. So what I would love people to understand is understanding that this is not a monolith, that you really go on the journey with people, understand what I need as a human being that has this identity that's non-traditional and give me what I need. Be on the journey with me. And I like to say in my circle work and in my dialogue, we talk about asking for what you need and allowing people to offer what they can. So when people ask for what they need, just offer what you can. That's not something that we're taught, especially in Western society, you know, how to ask and receive. There's this, I think it's a beautiful Buddhist practice and I haven't really talked about it on this podcast, but it is that practice of like giving and receiving, you know, the idea that you loving kindness out into the world. And for anyone that's listening to this episode, if you don't know what loving kindness is, listen to episode number five, where I offered a loving kindness meditation. But there's another practice in Buddhism called Tonglen, which is this practice of like giving and receiving the idea that you offer the world well wishes, loving kindness, wishes for health, well-being, but then you take and hold space for the suffering of the world. So there's this balance that we can learn to hold space for as human beings in this effort to learn asking for what we need and then allowing those people in our lives to give us what they are able to. You know, I think that that's a great teaching in acknowledging that we all really are interconnected. And as the term is stated in Buddhism, we are all interdependent upon one another. Whereas we are individual beings, none of us can live without the other perception that we're separate. I think what you said there is powerful. And you've also outed my Buddha nature. My email signature always says, sending good wishes always. And I don't think people give it a thought, but that comes from my Buddhist practice that I know that whatever I send out, I will receive. So always sending good wishes. Question number four is, what would you like to say to all the lawmakers globally that are creating laws against the queer and trans community? We don't have enough time. All I want to say to them is stop the shit. Stop it. Stop it. And the, the, the challenge is that, you know, and now that, that people have probably stopped giving me the side eye, is that these laws... We have to understand the statutes, some of them have been there for decades, for centuries. So where I come from, and in some of the Caribbean countries, there still are laws that can be really harmful for people that are queer, trans, for people that are gay, 
lesbian, anybody in the LGBTQIA plus community or LGBTQ community. Laws on the books. And this is why when I was a professor and I did service learning, I knew that I couldn't take my students to Jamaica and keep them safe. Yes. I knew that I couldn't. Right. So I don't know what to say to them other than, can we do the right thing? But here's the challenge. And we talked, we touched on this earlier on. There are lawmakers who are living in ways that a part of their shadow nature touches on some of the issues that we talked about, right? We talk about living on the down low. Some of them have family members that they either have to love in private or that they have ostracized. So there's a level of the humanity that's missing, the humanity for themselves and humanity for the other. And again, this is spiritual. So until we come to that place, you know, I was listening to something and I'm not going to give them the airplay, but I was listening to a well-known religious leader on cable television on Sunday evening. And I tune in because I want to hear what they're talking about. And I was like, my God, it was past homophobic because it almost seemed as though they were rallying and, and winding people up for a level of hatred, not fear. That's what the phobia is. Phobia is fear. A level of hatred that I thought, are they trying to institute a purge? They were talking about people that were non-binary. They were talking about people that were LGBTQ. And I thought, wow. So there's a level of humanity that needs to come back. And I don't even think, and I'm sorry to say this, Stevie, I don't know if we have the capacity to go there, some there's something broken. I know that I am supposed to be fearless, but that level of brokenness is scary. I agree with you 100%. As a pastor's kid, I find myself watching those people or just, you know, keeping an eye on them, so to speak, to see what comes out of their mouth. Because at this point, it has reached like a level of indoctrination, where they are actively indoctrinating hate by the messages that they speak. That is a level of spiritual warfare, I think, for lack of a better term. No other words for it. If you can't see the humanity in someone that's human, then all bets are off. And that's where the destruction comes in and destruction of life. So when you can't see the humanness in someone else, that's where it's easy to exterminate them. It's almost like that's the four horsemen to the apocalypse. That's where we're riding off into a place that can be the end of us. And we're seeing that very clearly play out in the world through all the genocide and oppression happening around the world not just to the queer and trans community or to the black community, but to many communities worldwide. So that's a subject for another day. But to recognize that this is where all of that leads is is very true. Okay, on a little bit of a lighter note, what would be your number one tip for queer and trans youth existing in the world today? Find people that love you, surround yourself with people that truly love you love you for who you are and how you are and know whose you are when you have that you know you have that sign behind you saying all we need is love when you have that level of love from the outside and you're surrounded with that level of love it's infectious and don't feel that you have to be anybody else for anybody first of all You have to be yourself for you. You owe yourself that. Absolutely. Amen. I haven't said that enough during this episode. (laughs) (laughs) What gives you the greatest sense of connection in this world? So many things. Being whole and not being a fragmented piece of myself. And I think doing the things that bring me joy and finding all those little pieces of myself that I did years and years and years ago, but that was just a piece by itself and bringing them all together, I think finding that wholeness, that just brings me absolute joy, absolute joy, just being whole. 
Absolutely. Yes, that is the goal. <laughs> so where is Dr. Michelle Cromwell going from here? What do you have planned in 2024? 2024 is the year of expansion. It is the year of eight and eight is my magic number. So for 2024, I am going, but I'm also taking with, you know, there's a saying that not everybody can come, but I want the people to come with me that feel that they need to, because this is not just about me going by myself. So I'm doing the pods and the pods are a way for women to be proximate. So P is for proximate, O is to observe and D is to do something. So I create these pods every month where women can join me and each other to do this work of holistic intelligence, the HQ work, to learn about mindfulness, to learn about mindsets, and then to figure out how you become a queen. <laughs> at the round table to leave that part and then go live in your full alignment. So for me, 2024 is all about helping women become fully aligned. So there are the pods and then also the immersive travel experiences. So in March, taking a group of women with me to Alabama, the civil rights South and touring civil rights sites, going to Africa town, which is a town that is mainly inhabited by people from Benin that was stolen from Benin after slavery was abolished, and being able to go there to do some of that same proximate to something that happened in history, to the Black, to observe ourselves and each other, how we talk and, and move around that and heal, and then to do something. And then in October, taking 42 Black women and love warriors to source Benin, Ghana, Togo for 11 days to do some work of the repatterning. And it's called a Sankofa retreat because I think for me, what I'm doing next is going back and getting it and saying to people, let's go back and get it. Let's go back to source wherever we need to. So that's it. That's 2024 for me. And then we'll do it again and again and again. <laughs> Action-packed in an exciting and impactful way. So I'm excited for what you have to offer this year. And you also have a summit coming up in February. Yes. Yes. Do you want to talk about the summit or should I? Go ahead. So I talked about 2024 being about alignment. Because we are sisters keepers, I think it's important again that we come together and we talk about how we can do this together. Because my liberation is tied in somebody else's liberation and every woman that's already liberated or further along in their liberation, we're bringing them together. So from the 12th of February to the 25th of February. It's a free summit. So bringing on 30 speakers to talk about this whole idea of becoming fully aligned and how you can lead with agency, how you can lead with boldness, how you can lead with courage, and just inviting women to come in and to listen to 30 powerhouses talk about how they became aligned. I'm talking about they, one of the powerhouses is sitting, is sitting here with me. And it truly, it, it's amazing. It's an amazing lineup. There are women and men who I only saw from a distance, who I never thought would say yes. You know, we have some global leaders and we're not talking about countries. We're talking about in the work that they do. So stay tuned. 14 days, 30 speakers, 30 plus speakers. It's going to be great. And it's free. This is awesome. I can't wait to see all of these speakers that are along for this amazing summit. It, it's yeah, I can't wait. All righty. Last question is how can people find you if they'd like to follow you on social media or a website or wherever you would like to tell them? So they can find me on Facebook. So I'm both on Facebook and LinkedIn. Don't really look for me on Instagram because I'm not doing as much work there yet. But you can find me on Facebook and Stevie, you will share my Facebook handle. 
It's Dr. Michelle Cromwell on LinkedIn. It's the same, Dr. Michelle Cromwell. And you can find me at The Fully Aligned Woman. So the website is fullyalignedwoman.com. Not the, but fullyalignedwoman.com because it's all about alignment. That's where you can find me. And please, we're in this together So I want to see you. I want to hear from you. I want to hear what you need from me. Because remember, I said, ask for what you need and allow me to offer whatever I can. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Michelle Cromwell, thank you for truly being a part of Queer Storytime, the Queer Storytime family. I am so happy that we met, that the universe connected us, and to be along the ride of all of the amazing work that you do in the world. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Love you, love you, love you. And just so happy that I'm in your universe and that we're orbiting around each other. Thank you for having me here. It was a true, true pleasure. You're very welcome. And everyone stay tuned for episode number seven of Queer Storytime that will be coming at the end of February. So stay tuned, everyone. I'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Hey, friends. I'm so delighted that you've made it this far. I sincerely hope that this episode has opened your heart and provided you with valuable insights into the lived experiences of those in gender and sexually expansive communities. There are several ways in which you can support this podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed if you haven't already done so, and be sure to share it with friends and family. Queer Storytime is a professionally produced podcast which costs about 80 US dollars per episode. If you feel called to do so, I kindly ask that you support future episodes of this podcast by making a one-time or ongoing contribution that is sustainable to you. Links to contact me or to contribute to this podcast are found within the description of this episode. From the bottom of my queer heart to yours, I'm sincerely grateful for you tuning in to Queer Storytime, the podcast. Hugs and love, y'all. Until next time.